you need to be able to withstand the fluctuations because I think one of the biggest dangers of leverage is that you get closed out at precisely the wrong time. If you're short and Bitcoin rips up, you get closed out. Hello there from Bedford. You might hear I've got a croaky voice. Sorry, I'm losing my voice. As some of you know, England played Germany last night and I was lucky enough to be at Wembley to see the game and what a night of football. We smashed them 2-0 and football is obviously coming home. Finally, football is coming home. Now listen, I know you don't all love football, but I do. I've had to suffer 30 years of Germany knocking us out of tournaments, so I'm going to have this moment. I'm going to celebrate... Is a big deal for me. But listen, as football fans, we are one. So can we please have a moment of silence for Scottish football? <laughs> anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I've got an interview with Jessica Chow, where she attempts to explain Bitcoin derivatives for me. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. And first up today, we have Casa, the safest way to store your Bitcoin. Now, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps, phishing attacks, there are all too many ways for you to have your Bitcoin stolen or lost. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again, because a Casa multi-sig wallet allows you to custody your Bitcoin, but only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets. And these are wallets you get to distribute into different locations, which is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to ask me anything about this, I've been a customer for about a year now. You can drop me an email, hit me up with a DM on Twitter. Happy to answer any questions. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. And next up, we have sportsbet.io. And as the Euros are on, I have teamed up with sportsbet.io to join legends Brett Lee and Denilson to make predictions during the tournament. And do you know what? What a great tournament. One that England are clearly going to win. Now, we are into the knockout stages, and I'm very excited for the massive game against Ukraine coming up this weekend. I'm so excited. And you can also go and check out my picks for the next round very soon. Now, if you also want a chance to win a prize, please do head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions and click on Clubhouse Legends Picks and see the picks I've made. That is sportsbet.io forward slash promotions and click on Clubhouse Legends Picks. And next up, we have Exodus Wallet, who I am using as my mobile and desktop wallet for my Bitcoin. Now, as regular listeners know, UX is something that is super important to me. I'm always going on about this. So when the Exodus team reached out to me and they said, Pete, we want to sponsor your podcast, I spent some time playing with the app. And you know what? They crushed the experience, so I've been more than happy to recommend it to my friends and family. Now, Exodus Desktop gives you a secure way to manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with their mobile wallet, you can send and receive safely, knowing that Exodus automatically checks addresses for errors. Make sure you check it out yourself at exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. Okay, on to the show today. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so croaky. But today I'm joined by Juthika Chow and we are getting deep into derivatives. Now, after all the shows I've done with Willie, I almost always have someone emailing me or dropping me a DM asking me about options or futures or what perpetual swaps are. And the truth is, I just don't know well enough to explain. I'm not a trader. I buy spot and then I send it to cold storage. I mean, this year I put a little plain money into my plus 500 account and executed a handful of trades. And now while I doubled my money, it was only a couple of grand, and I don't really recommend trading, certainly not for beginners, because it's really tough out there. That said, I'm getting closer and closer to considering a small percentage of my stack, going into a trading account and seeing if I can grow it. Now, listen, if I do this, I will share it with you. It will likely be less than 5% of what I hold, and only on very specific opportunities. This year, it was on plus 30% dips in the bull market, but that said, I didn't execute anything on this 50% dump as I'm not sure what happened. It's worked out okay for me, but they are very limited and specific rules. I'm always telling people to be very, very careful with trading and even more careful when using leverage. Bitcoin is crazy volatile and the most important investment you're ever going to make is in your life. So it's not worth blowing up an account or losing all your Bitcoin. 
But at the same time, I know some of you want to do this, so I really wanted to get someone on to talk about derivatives and how people use them to hedge positions and what it all means. So a couple of years ago when Ledger X launched, the first physically settled Bitcoin futures contract, Jathika came on the show and she did an amazing job of breaking it down, how it works. So I asked her to come back on the show and answer all my questions around derivatives. And do you know what? She did a great job. But I'll be honest, I still haven't got a Scooby how perpetual swaps were. But I appreciate Jessica's attempt. Now, I hope you enjoy this. If you've got any questions, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Anyway, on to the show. Hi there, Jessica. How are you? Hi, good. How are you? Not bad. It's been a while since we met in New York. Probably, what, feels like, like two years, maybe? I want to say it was more than that. But wow. time gets so messed up in this space. So it could know, have been only two years, yeah. Yeah, it's like dog years. I feel like I've been doing this for two decades. Oh, completely. I mean, January <laughs> feels like three years ago. Yeah, it's just been just the wildest year. The the amount of things that I can't even get my head around it. It's a bit bit overwhelming. But uh, anyway, we are where we are. So thanks for coming on. Um, I've been doing these regular shows with Willy Wu, and a few people have been writing to me saying, "Listen, I don't understand how derivatives work," or asking me questions about derivatives. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how they work. I don't use them. I'm I, I'm just a spot buyer and transfer to cold storage. Uh, so I was speaking to my producer. And he's like, "Why don't Why don't we reach out to Jessica again? Why don't we get her on? She's She's the expert. She'll explain it all to us." So you ready for this? I hope so. Come on. All right, before Before we get into it, though, the first thing I did want to get into with you, and I think you'll know a bit about it, is to do with MicroStrategy. I'm sure you track what they do. I'm sure you are. Uh, quite aware of everything they're doing. So they've just done another $500 million bond sale. Um, and they've talked about launching it at the market securities offering for flexibility to sell up to another billion dollar of its asset class. What does this all mean? Like, I've got no idea. What 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 is a bond sale for a company? Is it the same as a treasury bond? Is it similar? How does it work? Yeah, so um, there's a couple ways, well, as crypto has learned, there's a lot of different ways that you can raise capital um, if you are, whether you're a token or a company. Um, So the traditional way is that you um, issue shares, which are securities. Um, So people have a stake in your company, that would be like Coinbase um, going public in their initial offering. Um, Another way in the capital structure is that you can borrow money, so you can issue debt. And that debt will have its own set of terms associated with it. Um, There are some times when you would rather issue debt than equity. So let's say you have um, a business that has good cash flows so that you can service your debt and may not be too expensive. And you'd rather do that rather than give up a stake in your company. Um, That could be a reason to to go after debt. And so I think what MicroStrategy has done and Sailor has shown is that he clearly has good command of understanding his company's capital structure and when it makes sense to raise outside money, um, how to raise that money. You know, they even when they do these um, debt sales, they do them as convertible offerings. And so what that means is that at a certain strike, the debt can convert into equity. And so it kind of combines those two pieces of the capital structure. And that's near and dear to my heart because it has an embedded option in it. Um, and so it's just, it's, you know, obviously uh, they, they're they pretty sophisticated and I think he knows what he's doing in terms of how he set it up. Um, but it's just such a cool way of bridging what are like these traditional Wall Street desks that take down these large trades with the Bitcoin space. Yeah. Okay. So you also tweeted about this because I was having a little bit of research. You said there are capital, capital structure implications. What does that mean? Like, is there, is there any risk with, with, with what they're doing here? Well, I think as long as they can service the debt, um, so as long as they can pay whatever they would need to be able to pay um, so that they don't default on the debt. And I don't think that the market has concerns about that, at least based on what I've seen. I'm not super close to it. Um, then, then it's not really an issue. Then they can basically sustain the price fluctuations of Bitcoin going up and down as long as they are um, fine on the debt side. But where, you know, I think maybe like retail investors might get into trouble is if you are um, like collateralizing that debt with Bitcoin and Bitcoin goes down. Um, so you just don't want to get into default on the debt. 
But um, but I think they're I think they're fine. I think you know on the capital structure side, I just what my team is getting at is I feel like there will be a case study on, and I'm not predicting it's going to go one way or the other, but it's just a fascinating. I don't think we've seen anything like this in terms mm. of um, just the use of proceeds and how it's being used to invest in so singly um, in this, you know, commodity. I don't think we've seen anything of the sorts. And so I just think it's fascinating to watch from the outside. Well, he's leveraging his business to speculatively attack Bitcoin. Uh, Sorry, speculatively attack the dollar with Bitcoin. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's it. He's you know, and so anytime you take on debt um, to like when you're borrowing money to invest in something like Bitcoin, you're levering up in um, in some way. And so yeah, I think the the amount of and the nature of leverage that he's taking, it's very clear what he's trying to do. Um, Mm. And you know, credit to him so far. It's been okay, and obviously the the markets, um, you know, constantly uh, oversubscribing for these. So, well, it, it seems to me like his play is a decade long play minimum in terms of the money he's raising to to make these purchases. Uh, one of the interesting things I was talking to Lynn Alden earlier today. We we make a monthly show, and one of the things we were talking about is that. Um, there's not been many other companies that have followed him, and the, those that have have made a certain amount of investment. He's essentially turned his business into a Bitcoin business. Bitcoin has become the reserve currency for his business. Um, it's you know it's almost become the unit of account in some ways for for his business. And we were talking about how nobody's done this, but I think he was in that advantageous position that his first trade was I think his average price was something like eleven six 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 dollars. So he made such massive gains that he was in that position where he could you know, consider making increased purchases. Whereas now you look at someone like Tesla, they're underwater in their purchase. So I can imagine there's some pressure on Tesla around that decision. So, I, I you know, some of this stuff, it's like people today panicking about the, the price of Bitcoin. You know, for you and I, I've been in Bitcoin for a long time. Our average buy should be considerably below what the price is now. But people coming in new are in that tricky position. And you almost, you almost have to time the market right to be able to, to make these decisions. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, you definitely see that um, that whether it's like individuals or companies that the resources you have available to you um, change your risk reward calculus, you know, over time. And I mean, I just look at it from I look at a lot of companies in the space and you definitely see this uh, massive like differentiation between companies that put their either put their treasury into Bitcoin, uh, when I say treasury, not like corporates, but like literally Bitcoin mm. startups, or, or even startups that raised ICOs, right? Take like Block One, for example, hold like 200,000 Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> you have So you have these companies that never really had to have a business model, never had a business that worked, never found product market fit, but they're still around because they just held their treasury um, in Bitcoin, you know, and it's kind of this, I guess it, it affords them now at the height of the, you know, well, not anymore, not today at the height of the bull run, but it affords them um, a different set of like utility and risk reward calculus because they are sitting on all these gains. Um, and so, yeah, I agree that with MicroStrategy getting in at that level, I think I want to say Square was got in around that level too. They did, um, yeah. But they obviously took a more conservative path, I guess. Well, I think their initial, I don't know if they, I can't remember if they followed on, but they did a $50 million purchase, which was, you know, was quite quite a small amount for them compared to someone like uh, MicroStrategy. And one of the things I always say to people, um, is, you know, especially people who are listening, because I get a lot of new listeners when you're in a bull market, is that one of the things you really need to do is survive four years. If you can survive four years in Bitcoin, the next four years become pretty easy. You know, we all took a massive haircut this last uh, few weeks. And whilst it's not great, it's quite easy to handle because I've done my four years. I've still got my initial investments, well, some of them, uh, and I was stacking through the, the bear market. I think if you came in in the last six months, this is quite a tricky thing to handle. So just hold tight, be patient. Yeah, completely. And I think, um, you know, not to derail this and take it to derivatives, mm-hmm. but that's kind of where they come in to some degree too is – because you can put on these trades that have this limited loss or you know very fixed risk reward calculus um, because at the end of the day a lot of it is just survival you know if you can just survive through whether it's you know something like March of last year or May of this year um, or through like 
2015, 2016, when all people cared about was blockchain. But if you can survive through those periods, then you don't have to do anything crazy in the bull runs. You just have to be there. Um, and that's yeah. really about it. But people just, I think the people who uh, run into problems, they just get too greedy or too fancy um, and, you know, get liquidated at the worst time, which is when you don't want to be liquidated. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and this is why I wanted to get you on to talk about these. Look, I don't, I don't use leverage. The only time I've ever used leverage is when there was a market crash and I was all in Bitcoin and I took out a loan. A bit like it was, I was like doing a mini micro strategy thing. I took out a loan and bought Bitcoin at seventeen and a half thousand, and that's fine because my cash flow is great and I can service it. So it's a very it's like a retail version of micro strategy at minuscule level, but it's absolutely fine. Like it's it's a really easy thing to me to do, and that Bitcoin's still nearly up over a hundred percent. Uh, and I, I did have a little play with CFDs just to try and uh, to learn to time the market, you know, when there's a big dip. And I, I think out of the eight strikes I tried, six profited and I sold out because I was trying to learn about trading. Um, I still don't know if I'll do it, but but I am getting a lot of questions about um, derivatives. People want to understand how they work. Um, I see on exchanges the kind of leverage you can get is crazy. I mean, I think it doesn't one exchange have like 125x, which is obviously crazy. But all the expert traders I speak to, their leverage tends to be around one and a half percent, one and a half times maximum three. That's the you know none of the expert successful traders seem to go above that. Yeah, I worry about all these new traders who are getting absolutely wrecked because they're trading with very high leverage. So. You're obviously one of the biggest experts on this. You might be humble enough to say not, but you, you were my first choice. I, I want to I want to teach people about this today, and you know what I do in my show. Keep it absolute basics. When I ask you things, if I don't understand, I'm just going to say, please explain it again, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But okay, so starting off, for people who don't know, we'll just explain what derivatives are. Yeah, so derivatives are um, contracts or assets that's value is derived from um, a particular underlying. And so in the case of Bitcoin, we have Bitcoin as the underlying asset. Um, you can exchange it on the Bitcoin blockchain. You can trade Bitcoin for dollars. And then you can create a contract on top of that, um, whether it's an options contract or a futures contract, that's a tradable contract. You can trade between two different parties and its value derives in some way from that underlying Bitcoin, depending on the ex exact contours of that contract. Okay, so let's start. Should we start with futures? Sure. Okay, explain what futures are, how they work. I mean, look, my my, my first exposure to futures was in uh, Trading Places. Do you remember that film? I do remember the film. Yes. The, yes. Well, they were talking it's about not orange that juice. Bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so explain what futures are, their history, where they come from, and then how they're used in Bitcoin. Yeah, so futures, um, I don't know how far back they go, but definitely um, back to like the commodities markets are um, a natural example of futures and one that I love because they actually make like economic sense. So futures are an agreement to buy or sell um, a particular commodity or asset at some date in the future. And so, you know, reason that you could in the traditional commodities world um, want to trade futures is if you are a wheat farmer. Um, and so you are you have your like, I don't know much about farming, but you have your wheat crop um, and you're like trying to get it to grow and you expect <laughs> it all comes it to, down to weather, right? Yeah, right. And, and then you have existential things like weather. And so let's say it takes like three months for it to reach the point that you can actually uh, have wheat that you can then sell to people. Well, in that three months, um, the price of wheat, a lot of things could happen. And so what you might want to say is, OK, I want to lock in the price of wheat um, and deliver it at three months in the future when my crop has matured. And so it allows you to lock in a price today. Um, for a delivery on a particular date in the future. Now, where this comes in with Bitcoin, or where I think it's interesting to people with Bitcoin, is not so much because it allows people to trade in the future. Like, there are some advantages that you could, in theory, say, okay, well, maybe I don't have to custody the Bitcoin for three months, and so I'd rather buy a future to save on the custody. But those are all, you can custody basically for free and there's so many custodians. So those are not really the, the reason that people are drawn to futures. I think why they're drawn to futures is that 
um, as compared to a spot trade. And spot is just when we trade uh, wheat. I give you wheat, you give me dollars. Or, you know, I give you Bitcoin, you give me dollars. Um, as compared to that, a future is just a contract. And so we don't actually have to exchange the full amount of the um, of the underlying. And so it basically futures lend themselves to margin much more easily because trying to do a spot margin trade gets a little bit weird because if you want the Bitcoin and you want to go do something with it, if I bought it on margin, then it's kind of weird and, and it's hard to settle it cleanly. So it's much easier to say, hey, let's just trade a futures contract and then you can trade it um, and you don't have to have the full Bitcoin. You can have one tenth of the Bitcoin um, and just post that as collateral against the futures contract. Right. So g- give me an example of how you might buy a f- futures contract now or why you might buy it. Look, we're in June. The price is at, you know, we've just bounced up to around $32,000. Give me an example of a futures trade that you might make and why. What would be an attractive one for you? Well, so for one, in terms of like on the margin side, um, let's say, you know, so uh, something like 50% margin. So let's say that um, in this current market, you know, people are trying to, we just had a kind of a crash down to 30K and people want to conserve some of their dollars. You know, they don't want to just, you know, allocate it all directly back in, but they want to get some upside exposure, particularly, um, you know, I think where margin and derivatives come in is for traders I mean, I'm not saying that everybody should be a short-term trader, but is for traders who are looking to capitalize on some of these short-term price movements and may not necessarily have um, the collateral when everything's moving around. So futures would provide an opportunity to say, okay, well, I have $10,000 that I'm willing to put at risk. And then you have to understand the risks that you're taking. But so with $10,000, I can get exposure to one Bitcoin, so $30,000 worth of Bitcoin. Um, and so now if Bitcoin goes up, I have that exposure. I didn't have to pony up the full $30,000. Now, of course, there's the risk there. Um, and the risk is that you're borrowing money. You're borrowing that $20,000 from an exchange usually. Um, and so the exchange can then say, well, if Bitcoin goes down and you no longer have um, you know, 30% of the trade or 40% or 50% locked up in equity, we're going to liquidate you. Um, which means we're going to sell that contract for you and we're just going to sell it at the market. Um, and so what you get is is what you get. But there could be reasons, like particularly for traders. I think for traders, there's more natural reasons um, to use to use margin and also to try to capture some of the um, the price discrepancies that happen like between futures and spot. And it's another one of the reasons that people might use this is that you tend to buy these futures contracts with Bitcoin. That tends to be the collateral that you use, whereas you know spot price you tend to be buying directly with dollars. So you have the ability to leverage your Bitcoin to essentially acquire more Bitcoin. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the arguments for even just like the BitMEX, the initial like perps taking off and stuff is that, yeah, it's that you can, you know, so Bitcoin itself makes a good form of collateral. But then to your point, if you can um, trade instruments on top of it, turn your Bitcoin into more Bitcoin, it's more leverage uh, and not just leverage in dollar sense, but more leverage to Bitcoin. So absolutely. So the risk really is if you're if you don't have a lot of collateral and you overexpose yourself, if you hold a lot of collateral but you don't want to sell for spot but you want exposure to more Bitcoin, you know, uh, and as long as you can cover the margin, then essentially you're fine. Yeah, so if you if you can comfortably, like, you know, if basically you can comfortably manage enough collateral that you you need to be able to withstand the fluctuations because I think one of the biggest dangers of leverage is that, you get closed out at precisely the wrong time. You know, you get closed out when something's going against you. So if you assume that, like, if you think there's some, like, let's assume there's some, like, mean reversion, you know? So if you're short and Bitcoin rips up, you get closed out, even if it's going to dip back down and, and the other way too. But if you have collateral to manage those positions, then you're at least buying yourself the safety that you can withstand those fluctuations and you can still close out of the position when Bitcoin goes up or down, but you do it on your terms and not the exchange's terms. Um, and I think managing that is you know, a lot of what professional traders do very well. Um, I think actually, if you look at a lot of the professional trading shops and you talk to a lot of traders, they are 
very insightful about markets. They understand the signals, but they also really have a good handle on collateral management. Um, because, you know, in the Bitcoin space or in the crypto space, everything is, it's real-time growth settled. So it's all pre-funded. So if you get a move, I mean, you can have a margin call to liquidation be like way too close together for you to even try to move on one or two confirms on chain. Um, so it's really, it can be difficult to get that collateral where you need to. But if you have enough collateral, then, then yeah, you can, you can sustain those, those moves. And when might a, might a retail user consider this? Someone like myself, imagine, I don't know, I know at the end of the year, I've got a pretty successful job. Say I think I'm going to get a $100,000 bonus at the end of the year, but I want to buy Bitcoin now. And I know that money's coming. Would that baby be a, you know, I think Bitcoin's going to be significantly higher by the end of the year. Is that a time where I may consider a futures knowing I've got that money coming in the future? Is that a scenario you think people might use this? It, it could. I mean, it really, so it starts to depend at that point on how the cash flows work. And that's really specific to every exchange in terms of like, how do they margin it? What do they require you to post today versus at some point in the future? Um, but I think actually for a case like that, that's where something like an option becomes um, okay. really interesting. Because an option, you're paying a smaller amount upfront today for the right to buy it at a certain price on a date in the future. And so that's a great way to get, again, a little bit of natural leverage um, because you don't have to lay out the full 30000 for a Bitcoin. You can buy, you, know, you can pay $1,000, $2,000 for an option. Um, and you know you have this limited downside that is, again, smaller than if you were to buy a Bitcoin. It's $1,000, $2,000. So you can measure your risk reward. Um, get yourself that exposure, not miss out if there's, you know, another big run. And then on that date in the future, let's say the option was struck at 30000 and let's say at the end of the year, Bitcoin's 50000 and you get your 100 grand bonus. Well, then you can just pay the 30000 to exercise um, and get that $20,000 upside. So I think in, in those kinds of cases, options make a lot of sense. So if that does hit, I'm essentially getting Bitcoin at a fairly cheap price if I, you know, if the price has gone up, who, who's who's on the losing side? Because there's somebody therefore selling it at a at a price lower than it's worth. Yeah, it's, so it's a good point. So or a good question. So yes, in you know in derivatives, in the scope, I think zero sum is really all a matter of scope. But okay. it is correct in that for every buyer of a contract, there's a seller of a contract. Now the seller might lose on the trade itself, but not necessarily if you consider what the seller's doing and why and what the world looks like to them outside of that particular trade. So a great example of a seller would be, um, let's say somebody who's a long holder, um, holds a whole bunch of Bitcoin, and they want a little bit of liquidity. Maybe it's just to pay their rent. Maybe it's just to make a purchase. Um, maybe they're a miner. They need dollars. You know, pay A company needs to meet payroll, things like that. Um, so they could... One thing they could do is they could just sell some Bitcoin in the open market. Um, so maybe they sell it at 30K. But another thing they can do is they can sell that option. And so the advantage of selling the option is they could sell maybe a higher strike option. Maybe they sell a 40,000 strike option. And so they say, look, I would have to sell Bitcoin at $30,000 anyway. I can sell this $40,000 strike option, collect dollars today. So collect a few thousand dollars today that I can use today. And at the end of the year, if Bitcoin is above 40,000 and I have to sell it, well, I was going to sell it at 30K anyway. So I'm okay right. selling at 40K. Like they have that price target in their mind. Um, and if Bitcoin's below it, then they just keep the value that they collected from the option. And so to them, even though if Bitcoin's at 50K, it looks like, yes, they're the loser on the trade because in that scope they were, outside of that, it actually makes sense compared to what their opportunity cost was or what other things that they were considering. So with the exchanges themselves really a marketplace for these contracts rather than the exchanges taking on the risk themselves of pricing the market? Yeah, that's correct. So the exchanges serve as marketplaces. Um, I think where exchanges do take on risk is that there are exchanges that offer um, like margin trading you know, for options. And so to some degree, then the exchange starts taking on risk where 
if you trade on margin and then they have to liquidate you, how do they handle that? Um, but for the most part, they serve as just the, the marketplace. Okay, so help me understand another thing then. Sometimes when the market drops, so like we have a level today where we're hovering, we've been hovering around 30 to 32. We suddenly wick down to like a 28. And it feels to me like that's a psychological stop level. It's like, oh, I'm not going to set it at 30,000 because I think it will just go under. So I set it to like 28. And we always seem to dip below and we see these cascades and you know these these uh, these positions being wiped out. And somebody told me this is whales going you know stop hunting. What does that actually mean? Like when they go and stop hunting, what are they actually doing? Who are these people? Is this real? Is this a myth? Well, I think that um, I, I don't. I can't really comment. That, like, I don't know if it's real or or not. But I think that in general, it a lot of these activities overlap a lot with what professional traders are in the business of doing, which is right. they're in the business of understanding market microstructure. So understanding, okay, what does the order book look like here? What does it look like if you start to get some liquidations? You know, do we expect that that's going to cascade? How do exchanges liquidate people? Do they just submit limit orders? Do they send market orders? Um, and understanding those dynamics so that they can be well positioned to understand like, hey, is this move just a liquidity driven move that we think would revert? Or is it a like real, you know, supply demand shift? Um, and those, those all kind of filter into their view of um, of like the order book and of uh, of what kind of strategies they want to run, and so and I think that's a very um, it's sort of like a normal way that um, that professional traders look to understand the order book. So what? Why is Bitcoin so wild? Then? Or, or you might tell me, look, there are other markets that are wild like this. I mean, my only uh, trading history is I've traded a few amount of equities here or there, and. That's about it over, over my lifetime. Um, and nothing has ever been as wild as big. The only thing that actually was quite wild is I was trading Tesla back in 2000, I think it's back in 2014, I think, when it was going wild. But outside of that, everything else seems to be fairly tame towards Bitcoin. Why is Bitcoin so wild? Yeah, I mean, so I, I think Bitcoin is the most wild, even compared to any equity. And I think the reason, the thing that distinguishes it and why I would say it's more wild than any equity is because it is, I would have to say just off the top of my head, it has to be the most volatile, highest market cap asset that exists. Like a lot of other equities that move a lot. So you mentioned Tesla in 2014, there's biotech companies that have like an FDA approval coming out and those will be very high volatility. Uh, but those are very small market cap. You know, they're just like, okay, a few billion, 10 billion, even maybe like 50 billion in market cap, fine. But Bitcoin, you know, it was at a trillion dollar market cap and still a hundred vol. Um, and I don't think we've seen that with anything else. And it's quite remarkable, but I think that it speaks to just how early it is overall. It still moves almost like a startup would. You know, you can almost think, mm. I, I kind of think of Bitcoin as a startup sometimes, like you're buying Bitcoin, you're buying, like making like an equity-like investment or, you know, you're kind of investing in the equity and you want to, people are going to help make that equity do well and have equity-like returns. So it's almost like a really, really big startup. So even though the market cap has grown, um, I think it's just still that early. Yeah, I also wonder if there are just still some big players are able to push push the price around a bit too much. If we had a more even distribution of the coins, a more even distribution of the asset, then maybe that wouldn't happen so much. I mean, I think it still happens to a degree, but I'm if I guess if I compare it to back like five, six, seven years ago, that dynamic has definitely like the market's been able to absorb more and more. So I think it'll, and I think over time, like that'll just be a natural evolution as it gets more, as it gets larger and more stable. Because um, I mean, you look at even what some of these corporate treasuries were buying and stuff, or what some of the macro guys are putting on, and they've been able to do it. Uh, granted, they're trying to do it with little impact, which is a different, mm. a, a different MO, but they've been able to do it with fairly um, little impact. And I think that that will, you know, even if things kind of dry up in some of these market moves, um, th there's some like base level of liquidity that will um, that will kind of stick with us. Well, I, I think I was reading about MicroStrategy or Tesla. Maybe it was Tesla's buy 
Um, and I was speaking to another person who activates trades like this, and they're saying one of the most important things is you don't signal to the market like there's a big buy. You need to just incrementally buy small amounts and be careful about what, which wallets you're sending these to, etc., because these are seen as indication that might push the price around. Yeah, and I mean, the thing is, I think even if you even if you try to execute like strategies like uh, volume weighted average or time weighted average price in the market, um, people are looking out for that stuff, and so they can kind of pick up on it as well. But yeah, there's a lot of times like I mean, macro guys would probably be great at this. Like you're. The, there's an order of operations. And so the order of operations is you quietly work into something and then you get very not quiet about it, but you don't want to mess up that order of operations. No. Well, you want to be not quiet about it to push up the price. But then again, even with that, sometimes I've seen somebody announce something, the price quickly shoots up and then it then it goes back to the level it was previously. So I don't know. It's, it's Sometimes it feels like the, the market does find its natural price. But Okay, so you you mentioned calls. I'm going to add in there, there's puts. So puts are essentially the opposite of a call. You believe the market's going to drop. Now, one of my very early lessons in trading and why I don't trade anymore is that uh, there's there's one significant difference between uh, going long and going short with leverage in that when you go short with leverage, the essential, upside, uh, the essential downside to you if the price goes up is infinite. Whereas you know, the price can only go down to zero. And we know Bitcoin's not going to go to zero. It probably won't even reach 20K. So you know the bounds that you're in right now is probably probably between 30 and 20K, maybe even 30 and 25. Whereas, you know, if you're going short, we know the, the price could go to 100, 200K. And that presents a different kind of risk. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. So the, you know, being the limited, um, like on the upside, that unlimited upside versus the limited downside, uh, presents different risk, um, different types of risk reward, you know, and I think that's what makes like selling a call option. If you don't have Bitcoin, I don't think we see anyone who even wants to do that from a risk point of view, let alone um, a an exchange or somebody who would actually finance that trade. But it's it's exactly that reason. Um, on the put side, so you have this this limited downside. Um, so the natural reason for buying a put is protection to the downside. Um, so in a traditional market, you know, if people want to buy like S&P 500 puts or on a specific stock, you'll buy a lower strike. And what that lets you do is sell your stock or sell the um, index at that lower strike to um, to the person who sold the put. So let's say for Bitcoin, if you buy a $25,000 strike put, um, Bitcoin goes to 20,000, then now you can sell your Bitcoin at 25,000 instead of 20,000. So, you know, people typically, like the in tip, traditional markets, people typically use this for like protecting against crashes and prices going down. I think they're less used in Bitcoin because, um, at least like from what I see from my vantage point, is that people who want to hedge would rather sell a call option because Bitcoin is so volatile that options get very expensive. And so paying for a put option, paying for that insurance like month after month can get expensive. Whereas selling a call option hedges you a little bit as well, but it's a different cash flow that's a little bit more uh, more palatable. But on the other side, what's interesting is in traditional markets, a lot, there's not a lot of people who want to sell puts because it's like selling this crash risk, uh, which is seems like a prudent thing not to sell. But I think in Bitcoin, um, if you have, if you start thinking about like price targets in your head and you start thinking like, you know, people are always talking about buying the dip, um, you know, things like that. So if you start thinking, okay, if Bitcoin went to 20,000, I would be willing to accumulate a little bit, um, then what people will do sometimes is sell the 20,000 strike put. And so what that lets them do is collect the dollars today, monetize some of that volatility. And then if Bitcoin goes to 20,000, um, they get the Bitcoin put to them. So they end up buying Bitcoin at 20,000. So, so it's, I mean, I think that's part of the, like part of the way that people think about it. Now I should kind of note that the other side of that is that the, the clear argument against that is, well, if Bitcoin gets to 20,000, who knows what the world looks like? And maybe when you're at 30,000, you think 20,000 looks good, but you get to 20,000 and you're like, oh man, 20,000 does not look good. So um, <laughs> there's that side of it too. 
Next up, I talked to Jathika more about derivatives, but before that, I got a message from my amazing show sponsors. Okay, let's kick off with Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. But as I tell you every week, I am not selling Bitcoin right now. I am a hodler. I think we've still got good gains to come this year, so I'm not selling anything. But I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I also set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Now, I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With their streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing all in one clear, attractive interface. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com. Next up, we have my newest sponsor, Revolut. Now, as many of you know, Lois TSB, my bank, for 25 years, closed down all my accounts recently. They clearly don't like Bitcoin. But Revolut came along and said, Pete, we got you, and it could not be easier to create an account. So I moved everything over to Revolut. And do you know what? They're trying to make it easy for Bitcoiners to transfer to exchanges and buy Bitcoin. And also, Revolut are offering $20 or £20 to all new customers that complete three card transactions. Now, it only takes a few minutes to set up, and you can create a card and add it to Apple Pay immediately and get that cash in your pocket. You know what I would do, right? I would convert that immediately to Bitcoin. Now, listen, this is a new relationship, and I'm working with the Revolut team to help them build a bank, which is Bitcoin-friendly, but there is a lot to navigate, but we are doing our best. If you want to find out more, please head over to revolut.com forward slash WBD. That is R-E-V-O-L-U-T dot com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services, offering a range of products for Bitcoiners. Now, with a BlockFi interest account, you can earn yield on your Bitcoin. And I've been a customer for two years now, letting my Bitcoin work for me. Also, with BlockFi, you can take out a Bitcoin-backed loan. You can borrow against your Bitcoin without selling. And you can also now register for the BlockFi credit card, which is going to be offering 1.5% rewards back on all card purchases. If you want to find out more, please head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. And this week, we're finishing up with Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, and I'm still using the same Nano S I bought back then. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. Also, if you're an Android phone user, you can connect that to your Nano S and manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. All right. Tell me about, is it perpetual swaps? Are they called perpetual swaps? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Perpetual so, uh, I, Like I said, I've not really looked at this because I avoided trading. Uh, having uh, traded in 2017, doing done very well, sorry, did really well, thought I was a genius, and then completely crashed in 2018, realized I was a moron. Like, I tried to look at trade, and I was like, do you know what? It's just not for me. I can't spend all the time looking at a screen. Plus, the 24-7-365 thing means you need protections in for when you're asleep. I made a decision. My strategy is to buy and stack sats. Each month, I want to have more sats than the previous month, and that worked for me. Still, when I started looking to this, somebody said, oh, you know, I don't like uh, I don't like call options. I like perpetual swaps. And I was like, oh God, what are these? <laughs> Another thing to learn about. Tell me about perpetual swaps. Yeah, so um, perpetual swaps are uh, they the, so they are like the name says they are perpetual. So there's no expiration date. Um, so we've started off by talking about futures which expire on a particular date. Perpetuals don't expire, and so especially in Bitcoin, that provides um, some advantages to folks because. When futures expire, um, you have to worry about what they're going to settle to, what the risk looks like. And more than that, everybody has to want to be trading the same expiration date in order for it to be liquid. But with perpetuals, because there's no expiration date, everybody trades the same perpetual swap. And so um, they just have become incredibly liquid in the source of price discovery. They're basically a way to get exposure to the underlying, you know, usually with margin or with margin, you know, and and. Um, so you put, you get this exposure by having a reference price, um, and then there's a price that the perpetual uh, trades at, and the difference is just a difference that's paid between me and you um, on a continual basis. So if the perpetual, if I'm long the perpetual and the um, the perpetual, uh, the funding rate is higher than what the the current index is, then I'm paying you to be long that. 
So it's almost like a, it's not something that's unique to crypto. Um, like traditional markets have them, like total return swaps. I think they exist in different forms in different ways. But I think what's made them really big in crypto is that they provide um, another form of levered exposure, exposure that's easier than trying to trade levered spot directly because the spot needs to settle instantly. So in, ca- in this case, we can just have this ongoing contract with cash flows that are exchanged between the long and short holders every eight hours. Um, and we can I can maintain that constant exposure and the other side gets compensated for it um, in the funding that I'm paying for it. Right, okay. Let me try and understand this. So say I take out a contract. Am I taking it out for just a specific price? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so I'm so essentially, if I think the price of Bitcoin might hit, you know, hundred k by October, and I get a specific price, um, and that's going to essentially be priced in that that person doesn't think it will hit by October. But even oh, if it sorry, does, there's there's not a strike price. You're just trading it. No, you're just trading it at a price relative to what the current spot price is. So. If Bitcoin is, it's and, and it's similar in a future in that regard, that there's no strike price. You're just buying uh, at what the current price is and you're just settling it um, almost continuously, almost daily. But like if you think it's going to 100,000, then you can just buy the, maybe maybe the index is 30,000, maybe the perpetual is 30,500. You can just buy it at um, 30,500 and just get um, basically get levered margin exposure to Bitcoin. So in right. in some ways, it would be similar to trading levered spot, except that you can't really trade levered spot super easily. Right. I I definitely have no idea what you're talking about. I think we need to break this one down. Like literally, talk me through the trade. I'm I'm buying from you. What I'm exactly am I doing here? Because I, I don't understand this. I, I you know I can buy say say the price is thirty thousand today. I can buy that on spot. I transfer my thirty thousand to the exchange. Let's forget fees for the moment. I get my Bitcoin bag. I own it, and I'm done. If I'm buying a perpetual swap from you, what am what am I exactly buying? What am I transferring? What's it costing me? So you can transfer Bitcoin again, um, and you can pay some spread above, typically above spot, in order to own this swap. So you're not buying Bitcoin. You're just owning a contract. And that contract is a perpetual swap. And there's some price that the seller is, um, if there's a lot of buying demand, the seller will demand some, or the market will price in some ongoing rate that you're going to pay to be long that swap. And so you might pay like, um, like, let's say $30 every eight hours or something. And that's what you pay to be long that swap to get that Bitcoin exposure. So it's exposure that you get to Bitcoin, but you can get it for less because you can trade it on margin more easily than spot where you have to transfer thirty thousand. Here you might be able right. to transfer ten thousand. And so, what if the price suddenly shoots up to a hundred thousand? I still get it at that price, mm-hmm. the original yeah, price. S- yep, exactly. Right. Okay. Okay. So I, I understand that because one of the things is the only th- trade I've ever done once. I once did uh, a call option, and then you know the the option closed at the end of the month, and I was like, ah, and you know the price didn't hit, and I essentially lost my funding. Whereas I could have, with the perpetual sort, said, look, I'm happy to keep playing this funding rate because I believe that price is going to hit. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that is the issue with options is that there is that time dimension. And that's what makes the options so valuable um, is that there's or so interesting, maybe in a lot of ways is that it introduces this component of time. But like you said, it's, um, you know, if you the right trade at the wrong time in options is the wrong trade. So, so, I, so this swap contract, I can close out at any point I want. Mm-hmm. And I yep. pay the price that we originally agreed on the contract for the uh, no, you'll you'll pay the market price to close out on it. So you'll it's it's almost price. like entering into it's almost like mechanically it's almost like entering into a future or well maybe not a future because it expires but like a spot in terms of there's a market price that you will pay to buy and sell it, and it's just the difference between the the index price and the market price that is the financing cost that you're paying to to be long that exposure. Fine. I and, still that's, don't know and that's <laughs> driven by supply demand. 
<laughs> I think that's one of the ones I'm going to have to actually go and create one and see what it is so I fully understand it. I probably never do it anyway. That you know, I still say to most people, don't don't do this. Okay, right. Both, yeah. Sh- shorting. So I was trying. I understand shorting. I was trying to explain this to somebody when I was in uh, away on my travels, and I was trying to explain to them, you're borrowing an asset from somebody at a price to short it, and then you're paying back later. Do you want to explain this fully to people so they understand how shorting works? Um, yeah. So it's kind of like you described. So you're selling an asset that you don't. Um, And so you borrow it from somebody for purposes of selling it. And and then you sell it. And then you still owe that asset back to that person at some point. Now, ideally, what happens is you you borrow this asset that you don't own. You sell it at $30,000, let us say. Bitcoin goes to $20,000. You buy it back. And then you deliver it back to whomever you borrowed it from, whether that was from the exchange or from a lender um, or something like that. So that's how it works in an, in an ideal world. But you're selling an asset that you don't own. Okay. So what I want to get into now is I want to understand the implications of derivative because we've seen some pretty big collapses in the price this last year. We've seen, it feels like uh market really unwinding, these cascading uh, drops in price. And you go into Twitter and you hear like there was X billion in capitulation. And then people saying, well, there's too much leverage in the system. Is is that a fair point? Can there be too much leverage in the system? Is this a risk? Is this systemic risk to Bitcoin having too much leverage in the system? Does it are we stopping proper price discovery? Or is the argument the opposite? Does do derivatives give better price discovery? Yeah, so I think um it, it is a spectrum. So, you know, introducing leverage definitely accelerates the price movements. And so if you were to suck the leverage out of the system, one could argue that you would still get maybe like a steady climb from October of last year through March of this year, but it would be slower and not as you know accelerated. I think in the crypto space in general, um, I mean, there's like definitely there's retail pockets of leverage, but I don't think overall it's actually that enormously leverage. You know, particularly if you look on the notional side, like a lot of the big shops that are holding a lot of the exposure, they're not holding it on definitely not 100x leverage, not even 5x leverage. Um, and, you know, with crypto, I, I really don't see it as systemic risk. I think what's interesting about crypto is um, because you know, you have this dynamic where the exchanges are um, like settling everything. And when you trade on leverage, they basically take over the liquidations and stuff. And, you know, honestly, the exchanges have built some pretty like robust and resilient models and um, ways to liquidate folks. Like, I don't think if you look at the traditional world, you don't have anything of that scale because of, in the traditional world, you have very, very few defaults. Like they're, it's like designed around avoiding defaults, avoiding liquidations. Like it's the last thing they want. So you have very, very few, but then you get like a 2008 and you get like a Lehman that blows up and you get these massive liquidations. In crypto, you have them much more frequently. And so in a way, the exchanges are, they're kind of cutting off the risk early. They're not letting it grow to anything too, too big. They're getting like a lot of data, refining their models. And so I actually think from a systemic risk, it's um, it's it's actually not that bad and it's fairly um, fairly contained. I think the cascading piece is just more a fact that there's just so much like momentum and groupthink in the space. You know, people get behind the same like everyone's bullish together, everyone's bearish together, everyone's looking at the same technicals, and so I think that just drives a lot of like you know, everyone putting the same trade on. But overall, yeah. it's um, it seems pretty measured, actually, at a broad scale. And what about individual risk? You know, you're, you're an expert in this area. You must have friends that come to you and ask you questions. You know, do you give advice? I know we're not meant to give financial advice, but I mean, I'm at the bottom end of the spectrum. I say to everyone, don't trade, just buy spot, just, just, uh, just stack your sats, ignore it. And then if like, oh, no, no, if some of my friends are like, I really have to trade. I'm like, well, definitely don't trade shit coins because they're super risky and super volatile. But if they're going to trade, I say, okay, if you're going to trade, please be careful. 
Um, only use a specific amount of your stack. Please, please, please avoid leverage. And if you do use leverage, just test very small amounts, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, I'm ultra conservative because I know I'm crap. And 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 whilst other people have criticized me, <laughs> they said, well, you don't have to trade. I still know most people lose money trading. So do you do you have advice on this area? What do you think people should do? Yeah, so I kind of stopped giving advice too. And I'll tell you when I stopped. It was, I remember, it was December 2017 when I kept telling people not to buy XRP. And then XRP kept going up. And then everyone's getting so mad. They're like, you told me not to buy XRP. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to stop telling. I know, right? So I was like, there's... And then I realized what everyone else probably realized a lot earlier, which is like, it's not a good trade to give people advice. Like the risk reward is just not in your favor. So um, yeah, I try, look, I think, I mean, I try to encourage prudence. I know some people will listen, some won't. Um, I'll try to point to things like volatility and, you know, say, look, at a hundred vol asset, that means it can easily move 30% in a month. So like, just make sure that you're comfortable with some of these like deviations. Um but yeah, I, I kind of try to, outside of just like stacking Bitcoin dollar cost averaging in, um, I try to stay away from too specific trading advice. I definitely do not push people towards derivatives because um, I think that, you know, whether it's options or futures or perps, like just it's even more complicated than the traditional world because you have to understand the how they settle and how they get liquidated um, and all of that. And so I, I try to keep it simple. But that's still advice. Prudence is advice. I, th- I I think that is great advice. And I I always think people, especially if you're a new company, you just need to take a bit of time. Just to, it's a bit like when you go to Vegas, you can easily go at the roulette table and strike lucky and suddenly make a load of money. But you can very easily then lose all your money. You get that. You always seem to get that lucky streak when you when you do any new kind of gambling, and then you get a bit wild. And I think that's what can happen with this stuff. You might get a bit lucky. You know, you're hearing about Bitcoin in the news. It's the start of a bull market. You get lucky, it flies up, and then you can end up losing everything. And you know, I'm sure some people have got really, really hit quite hard in this last month. But I think prudence, I think that's advice. It's good advice. <laughs> All, All right, right, fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Um, you covered my next point because I, I had one of your quotes. You said you call Bitcoin a hundred volatility asset, but you've already covered that. Um, last couple of things. How does the 24-7, I mentioned this, the reason I don't trade is because it's 24-7, 365, but how does it actually change things with Bitcoin? Because I don't believe there's many other assets that allow this. I mean, outside of crypto, are there any other assets that do 24-7, 365? I don't think so. I mean, I know that there's, like, you get kind of close-ish with the um, S&P 500 futures, but they're not 24-7, 365. So what's the, I guess the biggest implication is that you can trade traditional markets around your job. Um. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, um, I think, I think initially, like there was definitely um, this kind of glamorous idea because there was no asset that that enabled it. Um, though I think if you look in the traditional world, there's probably more like legacy reasons why they don't have it. But, you know, it does, I, I do think it's better from a risk management point of view. Um, you know, a lot of other assets if you look at like equities and stuff, they'll gap up, they'll gap down, they'll be much harder to hedge more continuously. Whereas Bitcoin provides like continuous hedging. Um, It's like, you know, in the equities markets, it's one of those things that anytime you're trading options, like all the models, like all the Black-Scholes and models that people use, like they have these assumptions around continuous hedging, which like everybody knows doesn't apply in equities. But now in Bitcoin, you actually have something kind of close to it. So I think it's good from a risk management point of view. I think it's terrible for the professional traders and I feel really sorry for them um, because I, and and like you look at this most recent bull run, I mean, it's just, it's just like nonstop. And I think they all have to have all these alerts going off in the middle of the night and stuff. So probably not good for their like lifestyle, but um, but yeah, it's it's probably better for just continuity of markets. It's and it's just natural for it to be a true global phenomenon. You know, I can't imagine yeah. if if it, if it wasn't the case, how it would actually be a global currency. And lastly, what about regulations? We've had derivatives here. I'm not sure if it's all derivatives, but I'm pretty sure most derivatives have been banned with regards to Bitcoin. It's funny. I actually uh, I wrote wrote to my local MP about. Um, the treatment of Bitcoin uh, with regards to the government here. And he wrote back and it was very much a, a reply that said, you know, I want to protect uh, uh, the holders of Bitcoin in their wallets from volatility. And I was thinking, I don't want protection from you. <laughs> I'm an adult. 
I'm like, I have two children. I really don't need protection from you for, for my own financial decisions. But it feels like some governments feel like they have to protect consumers from their own decisions. Look, I understand that. I don't agree with it. What, what is your view? Do you think these markets should have any regulation or they should be treated like the Wild West and let anything happen? Yeah, I mean, there's a, I kind of see both sides of it, to be honest. You know, I think mm. that, I think in an ideal world, it's not ideal, but you know, in an ideal world, if the market could prove that it could self-regulate itself um, and like not have so many like scams and rugs and stuff, then that would be great. But it's it's not like that. You know, I also think there's a side of it that like with decentralization, a lot of that is about um, like personal responsibility and not having somebody for better or worse who's going to kind of like try to take care of you and coddle you and stuff like, you know, you have to own it at the end of the day. And so I think like, I mean, you know, I think where I come out on it is like, there's some stuff that's not ideal, but it's too, it's difficult. And and I think some of it's like out of the realm of regulators to try too hard to um, stop every little thing, you know, and um, that at the end of the day, like people who are going to like Mark Cuban's going to play DeFi games. He has to pay DeFi penalties, you know, like, um, and there's, I think, the part of me that thinks that that's just how it is and that's how it will have to be. Um, Regulation overall, you know, whether it's like derivatives or or overall, I think it's kind of going to be and and is becoming like a little bit of a bifurcation. You know, you're definitely seeing that whether it's like companies or participants that operate in areas that are not regulated, they're able to move a lot faster. They're able to um, be a lot more nimble. They're able to participate um, in a lot more trading products. You know, someone in New York in the U.S. is very limited in terms of what they can do. And so, um, and so, I think it's like it's kind of bifurcating in that way. Um, and you know, you're going to see probably more innovation come out of the unregulated space. And I think more than that, you'll see companies that are designed from the ground up to not be regulated. You know, like. Like people have gotten to the point where they understand regulations enough that they're designing companies so that they never fall into the purview of regulation. Amazing. And if not, they'll just move to El Salvador, which is a regulatory and friendly environment for Bitcoin companies. Exactly. I do wonder if some Bitcoin companies will think of headquarter in there. There's so many incentives right now. Uh, capital gains tax, uh, corporation tax, personal tax, lifestyle. You get to live in the sunshine and... Um, and you've got a regulatory-friendly environment. There's a massive incentive for companies to headquarter there now. Totally. And I think once you get a critical mass, then you get like a lot of the talent down there too. So then it becomes easier for recruiting and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it almost like it's like a Puerto Rico V2 kind of. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, look, this is amazing. Um, it's going to be very helpful for everyone. I'm sure they're going to love it. Is, is there anything I should have asked you that I haven't? Is there anything we've missed out? Uh, no, I think we covered it. Nailed it. Well, you have to thank my producer, Ben, because he did most of the research on this one. For um, sure. Okay, well, listen, this is a part of the show where I usually say, tell tell people how to get in touch, but you, you've got a bit of news, right? Well, yes, so people can find me on Twitter, and then I do have a bit of news. Um, I am, as of recently, uh, running Kraken's OTC options trading. So nice. um, we have, Kraken has an awesome OTC desk. They've built it, scaled it, institutionalized it over the years. and With Nelson? Options... For Nelson, yeah. I love Nelson. Yeah, he's awesome. Awesome. Awesome guy, awesome group. And um, Options is the one piece we've just been seeing so much client demand. And so we're uh, we're kicking off some OTC options trading and building that business. Awesome. Well, listen, Kraken seems to be getting everyone at the moment. There's a crack team of people over there. Um, I love Jesse, love the company. And I I, I need to see Nelson again. I think... uh, that's when I'm in New York, I'll hit him up. But thank you for doing this. Thank you for explaining it. I didn't. I, I think I got everything, just the perpetual swaps. I, I need to go and do a bit more homework on those. But I appreciate you coming on and dealing with my simple questions. No, for sure. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Well, listen, are you bullish? <laughs> long, always long-term bullish. Yeah, always long-term bullish. That's the perfect answer. You could, you could have been a politician. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica, listen, thank you. Take care and I'll see you soon. Thanks. Okay, what did you make of that? Jessica's great, right? She did an amazing job. Yes, I didn't understand perpetual swaps, but 
She did an amazing job explaining the rest of it to me. Now listen, if you are struggling with some of these concepts, do not worry. Derivatives are incredibly complex and it takes time to absorb it all in. And if you're not an experienced trader, do be careful out there, especially if you're using leverage. You don't want to blow up your stack on the back of a Elon Musk bullshit tweed or some China fad. You just want to stack your sats. Anyway, I really enjoyed this one. If you've got any questions or any suggestions, you know you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com or hop into my Telegram channel. Outside of that, if you want to support the show, please go and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. Hopefully you like the show. Hopefully you think it deserves five stars. Outside of that, i got to go, man. My voice is dying. I've been shouting too much. I need to go and chill, drink some water and relax after that amazing win by England. And hopefully... Hopefully, on to football coming home. All right, I will see you all soon.